And a good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. Jesus asked of the apostolic band, who do men say that I am? And that question about the identity of Jesus is really what sets the Christian faith apart from other world religions. Other world religions are built on uh, theological propositions or philosophical ideologies. Uh, But Christianity rests itself on the identity of its founder. And uh, who is Jesus? Now, everybody has an opinion because arguably he's the most single greatest influential person in the history of the human race. And everybody has opinions about him. My guest, uh, Trent Horn, has just published Counterfeit Christ. It's a look at those imposter Jesuses. I mean, St. Paul, uh, writing to the Corinthians, uh, pointed out that uh, you know they can have false concepts of who Jesus is. And so Trent, as you know, uh, is really one of the uh, stalwarts at Catholic Answers, a regular host at Catholic Answers Live. He's a staff apologist there and the author of outstanding books, including Answering Atheism and Why We're Catholic, and now Counterfeit Christs, a look at uh, oh a dozen and a half false images of Jesus. Trent, good to have you here. Thanks. Good to be here, Al. And Christianity rests on the identity of its founder, right? It does. As St. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15, if Christ has not been raised, uh, then your faith is in vain. That our religion, the Christian faith, is not based uh, on just what an ancient text says. It's not based on hearsay or legend. It is based on a person, an individual who lived in history, uh, in historical circumstances, affected the world, and if this person did not exist or was not divine or did not rise from the dead, then the Christian faith uh, falls to this individual. So that's why getting the identity of Jesus right is so crucial to having a correct understanding of the Christian faith. Yes, I mean, it, again, in, in 2 Corinthians 11, it comes up as well, uh, which I think is, I've always loved this passage. He says to the uh, Corinthians there, I hope you'll put up with me a little of my fo- with my foolishness, uh, but you're already doing that. I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I have promised you to one husband, uh, to Christ, so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray for sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, basically you swallow it whole. So this was a question in the earliest church as well. It's not just a, a later problem for Christianity. Um, do you think today in 21st century America we have more pictures of Jesus out there than we've ever had? More? Oh, you mean the images? Images of Jesus, pictures. yeah. Invented uh, Jesus, yeah. Right, yes, because uh, certainly the, uh, the the church I attend has many icons. You're right, right. Of right. course. But uh, there are, nowadays you have with the internet and almost anyone having a platform, if they just make a loud enough noise, you have a, a multiplicity of false understandings of who Jesus is that really stretches across the gamut from 
uh, mild reconsiderations in academia to full-blown conspiracy theories and everything in between. And so that's why in my book I cover 18 of the most common counterfeit Christs people will come across and show how to expose these counterfeits uh, through uh, sound biblical studies and historical research. Let's take one that comes up all the time. Uh, probably America's favorite uh, passage of Jesus would be something uh, like, um, do not judge. Uh, the non-judgmental buddy is who you call him. Uh, what's wrong with that picture? Well, what's wrong with that is that it assumes that Jesus is often said to be a friend of sinners, and he certainly is. But we import into that the modern understanding of friendship, which is just caring about another person's happiness. And so even nowadays, many friends will refuse to correct a friend, won't say anything to hurt their feelings, even if a friend is making a a stupid or a destructive decision. Rather, Jesus is a friend of sinners precisely because he sought them out, even when other religious authorities would ignore them and call them to repentance and conversion to heal them. Uh, so when Jesus says, do not judge, in Matthew 7, 1, he's not forbidding all judgment, uh, because later Jesus says in the Gospel of John, uh, do not judge by appearances, but judge rightly. Right. And Jesus never condemned judgment. He condemned hypocritical judgment, judging yeah. people for sins you yourself are guilty of. So that's why Jesus said, take the log out of your own eye first, and then take the splinter out of your neighbor's eye. He never said you couldn't take the splinter out, just clean up your own house first before you help your neighbor. Uh, so when Jesus uh, is a, a friend of sinners and cares for us, he does judge us, but not as a harsh judge who relishes in punishment, but more like a doctor who makes a diagnosis. And that's very appropriate because Jesus said in Mark chapter 2, uh, the sick have, why he spent time with sinners to the Pharisees, he said that the sick have no need, sorry, the, the healthy have no need for a physician, but the sick, I came to call sinners, not the righteous. Yeah, yeah. Uh, people... It's odd today that in a society in which there is so much judgment and polarization and people establishing their own set of morality, so, you know, secondhand smoke uh, now is as dangerous as adultery. Uh, It's funny that they should have adopted a Jesus who is not judgmental at all. I'm just surprised that the non-judgmental Jesus is still gaining currency today. I would think they'd have a Jesus which is, you know, judging their enemy. Well, that's where there's the doublespeak, and I cover that in my book, that the same people who will say Jesus uh, was not judgmental and Jesus was tolerant, uh, they will say that Jesus would judge and would be intolerant of one particular group of people, <laughs> and those are Christians who hold to traditional understandings of faith and morality. Right. They would say that Jesus... Uh, would be pro-choice. Jesus would support so-called same-sex marriage, and Jesus would excoriate or he would reprimand people who claim who oppose these things, quote-unquote, in his name. So what's ironic is that for many of these people, Jesus is non-judgmental. Christians are told, don't condemn these people, don't say they're sinners, that's wrong. But then it gets turned around, and the person who's upholding the dignity of human life or the sacredness of marriage is said to be a horrible person who Jesus himself would condemn. So they yeah. kind of try to have it both ways. <laughs> right, right. Uh, let's go to something which uh, I'm surprised that it's actually gained some adherence, 
uh, and I suspect it's because of the the, pop, the internet allows people with odd ideas to gather those around themselves. But the idea that Jesus never existed—that's uh, when I was when I was growing up in, in college. I can't think of any uh, educated person who would have maintained that. And yet, you do have people who claim that today. Yes, and the vast majority of them are are not educated in this particular field of history or classics uh, to have an understanding of of this matter, that they simply follow atheistic tropes and uh, other uh, propaganda that they find on the Internet uh, because they want to criticize Christianity, and they think that the most radical way they can do it is to say that Jesus didn't even exist at all. But the problem is that the current consensus among historians, both religious and non-religious, is that Jesus certainly did exist. Bart Ehrman is a former Christian, now he's an agnostic, he's one of the world's experts on the New Testament, and he said the view that Jesus existed is held by virtually every expert on the planet, because we have early documented sources referring to Jesus, both inside and outside of the New Testament. Uh, We have the non-biblical sources, like the Jewish historian Josephus, the Roman historian Tacitus, but even if you just restrict it to the New Testament itself, you have historical data in the Gospels, and you have the writings of St. Paul, that Paul knew the apostles. He knew people who knew Jesus. Mm -hmm. If there was no Jesus at all, who were these individuals following? So when you examine the data closely, you see the arguments that mythicists make to say Jesus never existed are very shallow. Uh, they usually try to say Jesus is a copycat of pagan mythology. Right, that's where I was going to go usually... next, yeah. Sure yeah. thing, yeah. So they do. They claim that Jesus was an invention based on templates that were laid down from pagan religions, and they claim to have these uh, correspondences, uh, these remarkable coincidences between various figures in pagan mythology and uh, the life of Jesus. I think uh, there was a... Uh, popular internet film that circulated called Zeitgeist, which I haven't seen yeah. for years, but uh, I had a friend who was much moved by that uh, movie. How do you respond to them? That's very, then that's unfortunate. Yeah. You know, <laughs> the movie, even, even atheists have come out showing the historical inaccuracies in that movie. Oh, uh, yeah. First, one of the biggest problems with this argument uh, is that the supposed parallels between Jesus and these pagan deities don't really exist, or they're strained beyond recognition. Mm-hmm. Uh, so people will say that Hor- the Egyptian god Horus was crucified and rose from the dead. He wasn't crucified. They say that uh, Mithra, the Roman uh, god Mithra, was born of a virgin on December 25th. Well, you know, Jesus' birth date is not actually found in the New Testament. That was a later tradition, right. developed long after that time. But even still, there's no evidence Mithra was born on that date either. And Mithra was not born of a virgin. He emerged fully grown from a rock, which is being born of a virgin in the only the most strange sense of, of that word, as I said. So when you go through and look at the parallels, they either don't exist or they're, they're hopelessly strained. It'd be like someone arguing, well, uh, John F. Kennedy never really existed. He was plagiarized from Abraham Lincoln. They were both <laughs> social reformers. And the fact of the matter is, John F. Kennedy was shot in a Ford, <laughs> right. and uh, Abraham Lincoln was killed in Ford Theater. So clearly, yeah. it, it's been plagiarized. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, was Kennedy driving in a Lincoln when he was shot too? <laughs> 
Oh, that yeah, that's, yeah. So even if I got the Ford detail, I'm like, oh, never mind. It was in Lincoln, but, right, but right. Lincoln was, uh, you know, in Ford Theater. Right, so, right, right, right. You know, it, yeah, it, it all it all comes together, and, and you see this all the time. And it, people don't understand. Well, look, you don't have the the bedrock historical details for Jesus. You have that. You don't have that for these other pagan deities. And so I show that in the book. And also, in some cases, they are right. The parallels are uncanny. There are some uncanny parallels between Apollonius of Tyana, Mm -hmm. the Greek wonder worker who died and rose from the dead, and Jesus. Well, the problem here is that the biography of Apollonius was written 300 years after Jesus died. (laughs) So there is borrowing, but in many cases, the direction is from Christianity to paganism. My guest is a Catholic apologist, Trent Horn. He's published recently, Counterfeit Christs, Finding the Real Jesus Among the Impostors. He does a great job of looking at uh, 18 false images of Jesus. We're going over some of them uh, on this broadcast today. I'm Al Crestle. We'll be right back. Good afternoon to you. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Trent Horn, senior apologist at uh, Catholic Answers, and we are discussing um, Counterfeit Christ's, uh, his newest book, Finding the Real Jesus Among the Impostors. What do you do with those uh, uh, people who believe that Jesus existed, but the uh, idea of his resurrection is just beyond uh, what 21st century science-educated human beings can possibly believe, and that from far as they know, uh, Jesus existed, but he basically dotted, uh, died like everybody dies. He was crucified, and his body just rotted away. Well, what I would say is, that were the case, how do you explain the rise of Christianity as opposed to all of the other failed messianic movements of this time? The Jewish historian Josephus, as well as the New Testament, refers to other failed Messiah figures, people like Seudas or the Egyptian, that when a Messiah, a person who claimed to be the Messiah, failed and was driven into exile or killed, their followers simply abandoned them and tried to find a new Messiah. But that didn't happen with Jesus. Instead, Jesus' Jewish followers were preaching both his glorious resurrection and the future resurrection to come, that they're preaching this. Uh, and you'd say, well, why... Why would they do that without some kind of life-changing event to motivate them, in this case, to be able to do that? They're either lying about it, which one wonders why uh, you know, liars make poor martyrs, or they're completely unhinged. But that is a stretch to say that for all of the disciples, as well as for skeptics like Paul and uh, and Jesus' relatives who didn't believe in him during his earthly ministry. Uh, I would say that the minimal historical facts related to the death of Jesus, his death, the post-resurrection appearances, his empty tomb, and the radical change in the disciples' behavior and skeptics uh, can only be explained, if we're talking scientifically, can only be explained by the resurrection hypothesis. Anything else really fails to account for the data. Uh, There's a a picture of Jesus as one of uh, many avatars. Uh, You see this in New Age uh, thought, that Jesus uh, existed, that he worked wonders, 
but that he's only one of a pantheon of ascended masters or avatars who have come to the earth, uh, similar to, the, say, Krishna. What do you say to people who have uh, professed respect for Jesus as a great savior figure, but don't find him unique? Well, I would say just compare his teachings to other Eastern mystics and others who try to uh, portray Jesus as a, a guru or practitioner of Eastern wisdom. Look at his very teachings. They have to be radically reinterpreted. That when you look, Buddha, for example, denied the existence of a personal God. He denied he was a savior for anyone. Uh, he said, be lamps unto yourselves, light your own path. Whereas Jesus said, I am the light of the world. Uh, anyone who walks to me will never walk in darkness, or no one can come to the Father except through me. Jesus made radical claims to, uh, for himself, and he did not qualify it like many uh, Eastern sages, modern past and present say, which is, well, I am God and you are too. That's the Deepak Chopra, the God consciousness, Eastern views of, of divinity. Jesus was a Jew. Jews believed in the radical discontinuity between God and man. Right. Uh, that men do not become gods, and God is not a man. He's not an idol. That's what made the Jews different from their pagan neighbors. And that's why Jesus was, was charged with blasphemy, because he made that radical claim for himself, not for anyone else. And so I would say that the Eastern view, if you have admiration for him, uh, admiration for what? He's either Jesus is either a liar, a lunatic, or he is the unique Lord that he claimed to be. And if that's the case... We owe him worship that is different than we would owe a respect of any other human being. There have been groups that have uh, aberrant forms of Christianity that have developed uh, over the years. We think of uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses or the Way International or chiefly Mormonism uh, as, again, those groups that claim to be in accord with historic Christianity— or excuse me, they at least claim to be uh, legitimate forms of Christian expression, but uh, they're not accepted within Catholicism. Uh, they're not even accepted within liberal Protestantism, and certainly not evangelical Protestantism, and certainly not in Eastern Orthodoxy. Jehovah's Witnesses, for instance, who claim that Jesus was the first and greatest creation of Jehovah God, um, but he certainly was not God himself. And they cite passage after passage, and they try to establish themselves as more biblical than thou. How do you approach them? Well, I think what's important here is to go back to biblical sources, and I I would really press them on the passages that show that Jesus is God, that he's not a creation of God, but that he is God, creator of all things, especially with the Jehovah's Witnesses, they try to say they're you know, more biblical than thou, right. but in order to make their case, they have to radically, not just reinterpret, but tra- retranslate the New Testament. Their New World translation of Scripture has to be modified to account for their theology. Mm-hmm. So, for example, in John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, is what it says in every other Bible— In their Bible, it's the word was a God. And I go into great length in my book to show that their arguments to defend their translation don't work from when you look at the ancient Greek. Mm -hmm. Also, if you look at Colossians 1, uh, Colossians 1.15, sorry, 1.15 through 17, Paul is saying of Jesus, he says, for in him, uh, or he is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. 
Now, Jehovah's Witnesses will pounce on that and say, see, he's the firstborn, he's the first right. made, the, the greatest of creation. They will know that in Scripture, firstborn as a title doesn't mean first made, right. it means of most importance, mm-hmm. or the heir of all. Mm-hmm. So, for example, Israel was called the firstborn of nations, even though many nations existed before Israel. Right. It had a special relationship to God. That's and when right. we go on, we see what that means, why Christ is firstborn of creation, why creation is owed to Christ, Paul makes it clear in verse 16, for in him all things were created. Uh, so if Jesus was a creation of Jehovah, uh, it couldn't say that. Uh, so that's why in the Jehovah's Witness Bible, Colossians 1.16 says, for in him all other things were created, is what their Bible says. Yet the Greek words for other, heteros and alos, are not in the verse. It has, it's added in there, and it's mistranslated to support their theology. Yeah. Let's go to Mormonism. Uh, what do Mormons actually believe, uh, and how have they, re- have they revised their conception of Jesus over the, uh, oh, the century and a half of their existence? Well, the basic view of Jesus has not changed that much among Mormon thinkers. Uh, uh, some more lurid descriptions of how Jesus came to be may have been revised. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I'll put it this way, Mormonism is, is definitely more complicated than the Jehovah's Witnesses, who will say, Jehovah's Witnesses will say, well, there's one God, Jehovah, and Jesus is his greatest creation, and he made the world through Jesus, and Jesus is a mighty God, right. or angel. Right. Mormonists, Mormons will say, well, there is an infinite number of gods. Men can become gods, if you follow the Mormon ordinances, you become deity, and you create your own universe, and those men, uh, human beings, can also become gods through an ever-ending cycle. And all of us, however, have existed as spirits for all eternity, and our Heavenly Father gives us spirit bodies. Jesus was one of these spirits or intelligences that existed from eternity past like the rest of us, and Jesus was the first one that our Heavenly Father gave a spirit body to, begotten in the flesh, uh, uh, he, Jesus is described among Mormons as our eldest brother. Mm-hmm. So Jesus differs from us not in kind, as Christians would say, but merely by degree. And so uh, this leads to the, the conundrum that all of us are God's spirit children. So even Mormons will admit that the fallen angel Lucifer, the devil, and Jesus are brothers. Uh, you know, their brothers are different, of course, in moral quality, but they're still brothers nonetheless, rather than saying that Jesus is the God that, that created all things. So, so, he, so then how do they sustain the idea? So, so is Jesus um, simply God of this, this planet? Is he the one that we have to do business with uh, and all these other gods? No, well, not are, even that. Okay. Not even that, because Jesus is not—Mormons do not Mormons do not pray to Jesus. Uh, they don't pray to him. Uh, you know, his, his sacrifice on the cross was, was Im- important for our salvation, but not the most essential element of it. Uh, rather, the God that we worship completely is Heavenly Father, uh, or the, the Father, which they call Heavenly Father, who created spirit children and gave them bodies through the assistance of Heavenly Mother, which would be the, the wife of Heavenly Father, mm-hmm. who is an embodied being that exists somewhere in this universe, that the Mormon God is an exalted man. So he has a physical body like you or I, and he lives somewhere in this universe. 
some hymns portrayed as being near a star or a planet called Kola. Yeah. Like I said, Al, it's, it's a bit more complicated than Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> I know. But, um, I know it is. Uh, uh, but the, so, so Jesus there, he exists as an important uh, model for us. He's the Son of God. So they'll, they'll give him the title, the Son of God, but will not ascribe full deity to him because, once again, Jesus is just more exalted than we are. But if we follow the Mormon ordinances, we'll reach that same level. And some people may say, well, you're just splitting hairs with all this theological talk. The point is, with all these groups that deny Jesus' divinity, there is an important uh, re- there's important effect or ramification. Namely, if Jesus is not God, fully God, his death on the cross cannot atone for our sins, because right. our sins incur an infinite debt against God, yes. uh, an infinite penalty. Right. So if, but if Jesus is God and he dies on the cross, his sacrifice is infinitely good enough to outweigh the badness of all of our sins. But that only works if Jesus is both fully man, to identify with us and represent us to the Father, and that he's fully God. That's why Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, we have one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. Jesus is our one mediator because he is both parties. He is God right. and he is man. That's right. Well, let's go to those who believe that Jesus is God, uh, but in fact they deny um, that he is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, they believe yeah. Jesus is the Father, Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is a movement within Pentecostalism, non-Trinitarian Pentecostals, which have grown in popularity over the last generation. Uh, let's. This is an ancient heresy itself, though. Is that right? That's right. Uh, we don't know exactly how it was attributed to the heretic Sibelius, uh, but it's called Sibelianism or modalism. But essentially, this is something that Tertullian wrote against in the third century. He wrote against it in a book called Against Praxius. And there's other church fathers who dealt with this at that time in trying to understand how God is a trinity. And so people bungle this today when they say, well, the trinity is like how a man can be a father, husband, and son at the same time. I'll tell you what, Trent, hold it there. The music came up. Let's pick this up on the other side of the break, because I think I want to make sure people get this uh, clearly. I'm Al Cresta. With me is Catholic apologist Trent Horn. Good afternoon. I'm Al Cresta. My guest, Trent Horn, has written an outstanding book uh, looking over 18 different images of Jesus, false images of Jesus. It's called Counterfeit Christ's. Finding the real Jesus among the imposters. Most of those who deny the Jesus of historic Christian orthodoxy would claim that he's somehow less than divine. He is not God in human flesh. But there are some groups that maintain that he is divine, and within Pentecostalism, there is what's called the Oneness Pentecostal movement. Uh, they were regarded as heretical by the Assemblies of God. But they still are out there uh, applying their trade, and they believe Jesus is divine. In fact, they believe he's so divine that Jesus is the Father, and Jesus is the Son, Jesus is the Holy Spirit. This is in, in the past, it's been called Sibelianism or modalism. And uh, let's pick up the problem with that, Trent, please. Right. So the problem with that, as I mentioned earlier, is people will make the analogy, the Trinity is like how a man can be a father, son, and brother at the same time. But the problem is he has those three roles, but he's not three separate people. That we believe God 
is a trinity of persons who are co-equal and co-eternal with one another, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And so, as I said before, when Jesus died on the cross, his death uh, makes satisfaction or atonement for our sins so that the Father turns away his wrath from us and instead uh, welcomes us as his adopted children in Christ, his Son. But when you have modalism or the oneness view, it all becomes fairly incoherent because Jesus just is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit at the same time. But this contradicts the biblical data. Uh, first, uh, people will say, the, the obvious one is, well, if Jesus is the Father, who is he talking to himself <laughs> right. when he's praying throughout scriptures? Yeah. And what the oneness proponents will say is, well, that's his humanity conversing with his divinity, which itself is, doesn't really make sense. No. Nature's don't speak, only persons do. Mm-hmm. But even if you go back further, the oneness view is that the Son came into existence at the Incarnation. The Son never existed before that point. Yet in John seventeen five, when Jesus prays to the Father, he says, glorify me with the glory that we had before the world was made. So here, Jesus, and also what St. Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 in the Kenosis hymn, how Jesus did not grasp divinity, but he was a model of humility. He emptied himself. What the oneness proponents will say is that prior to the Incarnation, the Son was a plan in the Father's mind, in in Jesus' mind, in God's mind. Uh, It was his logos, his word, his plan. But plans do not uh, exhibit humility, refusing to grasp divinity. And you don't share your glory with a plan. Uh, So when we read Scripture, it's very clear that Jesus, even if you look in the Synoptic Gospels, uh, it's, it shows Jesus says, I have come into the world, I have been sent into the world, that Jesus had pre-existence uh, before his incarnation, which really contradicts the oneness view and also some uh, Unitarian views of Jesus that try to say he's just an exalted man. Within uh, Protestantism, there have been pictures of Jesus that have been created over the last generation, especially among the prosperity preachers, which insist that uh, in the atonement, uh, lies our healing, lies our wealth, and that uh, Jesus himself is uh, essentially uh, somebody who uh, promises us uh, both health and wealth, and we should look to him as the source of all of our uh, provision. And But the fundamental picture of him is, again, uh, the source of wealth and prosperity. Right. So what people will say, they'll, they'll oftentimes take what Jesus said out of context uh, when he says, ask uh, and whatever, ask and you shall receive, uh, ask whatever my name you shall receive, or the measure which you give will be given back to you. Yet they don't understand these. Jesus is speaking in the context about spiritual gifts, not necessarily just material prosperity. Uh, the, the biggest cr- objection, though, to this prosperity gospel, saying that, well, Jesus wants, if you are, in the gospel, the prosperity gospel says, if you are faithful to God, God will be faithful to you and will reward you with wealth and happiness in this life. Because the problem is there's many faithful Christians uh, in sub-Sahara Africa or the Middle East who live in poverty and persecution. I highly doubt that's because they don't have faith. They probably have a lot more faith than many pampered Christians in America. Mm -hmm. Uh, Now, Mm -hmm. people will, of course, make excuses. So the, the, the silver bullet against that is to say, well, Jesus definitely had faith, yet Jesus was poor, or at the very least, he was not among the wealthy of his time. He was not a beggar, but he, was, he lived in relative poverty like almost everyone else. Jesus said the Son of Man has nowhere to rest his head. When he died, all he had was a tunic to divide up among soldiers. He had no property of his own. He, he, he didn't have 
anything. So if Jesus were, of course, the most faithful human being of all time, most faithful uh, human, I should say, uh, why wouldn't he have been the richest human? Why wouldn't God have blessed him in that way? Yeah, so that's the point of it. you see that yeah. just the prosperity gospel is just a bunch of, it's, it's really bankrupt. Right, I mean, it, it gives you a picture of Jesus, which uh, he never intended to, to demonstrate. If he wanted to demonstrate that he was the source of prosperity for us all, he could have established himself that way, uh, living a life of uh, great prosperity. Why? Let's talk about why it's important um, for Christians to protect themselves against these false pictures of Jesus and why the Catholic Church enables them to do so. Well, it's important to protect ourselves from these false pictures because Scripture makes it clear uh, our salvation is found in Christ. It's found through Christ and through no other name, as Acts chapter 4 says. But it's not just anybody whose name is Jesus. <laughs> it's not just, of course, someone who puts on that name tag. It has to be that person right. who existed from all eternity, that person who became man in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and that person who rose from the dead, that distinct divine person. And if you worship another Jesus who has the same name and some of the same backstory, if it diverges from that, you're still not worshiping the real Jesus, and you're not enter and you risk not entering into a life of grace and full communion with Him. And so, what the Catholic Church offers us, the Church offers us uh, a understanding of who Jesus is through the divine protection the Holy Spirit gives the Church to render infallible teaching, to say that these are teachings that have been revealed from God, that Christians are bound to, to adhere to. And what's funny is Protestants take this for granted. When many Protestants debate Jehovah's Witnesses, they'll cite the Nicene Creed, they'll cite the Council of Chalcedon. Uh, mm-hmm. Yet, if they don't believe in the authority of the Church, why should they think these councils have any authority? Right. Some of them will cite these councils, but then ignore the council's affirmation of the Catholic Church's authority. They want to try to have their ecumenical creed cake and, and eat it too. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Let's talk about that. Did it, It's often said that Jesus, and this is tied into one of your chapters as well, Jesus promised us the kingdom, and all we got was this darn church, and he never really intended to start a church. He intended to bring in the kingdom. And I would say here, well, what is the kingdom of God? If the kingdom of God, its closest parallel, is going to be the kingdom of Israel, Israel was God's kingdom on earth, and then the kingdom of God is expanding that to be not just faithful Jews, but all people. So what was that kingdom? Well, that kingdom were the people who worshipped Yahweh, but also that kingdom had a hierarchical structure of leadership to ensure its stability and survival. It had a mediator of the covenant, it all, and it had a mediator of the covenant, a king, and the king also delegated his authority to a vizier, to someone who oversaw his kingdom. Now that we're the kingdom of God and the new covenant is our mediator and king is, of course, Jesus Christ. Uh, but to continue the analogy from the Old Testament kingdom of Israel, we would expect for Christ to uh, appoint someone to be the overseer of his kingdom on earth. And we mm-hmm. see that, of course, in Scripture. He appoints the apostles to have authority. Luke 10:16, he says, he who hears you hears me. Uh, that he gives them authority to forgive sins, to bind and loose teaching, and he selects one of them to have unique authority for the Church to be built on. And that, of course, is Peter. And in Matthew 16, Jesus uses the same parallel language of saying, whatever uh, you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, I give you the keys to the kingdom. In Isaiah 22, when the king of Israel gave authority to his prime minister, the king said, I will, you know, I will give you the keys to the kingdom. Whatever you open will not be shut. Whatever you shut will not be opened. 
Uh, we see the same thing. So we have the kingdom of God and the enduring church that, that Christ established for us here on earth. Trent, let me thank you once again for all that you do and for being with us today, uh, helping us uh, wade through uh, this swamp of counterfeit Christs, of which uh, we, you will, we will encounter these if we're at all trying to share our faith. We'll run across these false pictures of Jesus. Thanks so much. No problem. Trent Horn is staff apologist with uh, Catholic Answers. You hear him regularly on Catholic Answers Live, doing a wonderful job, too. This little book, Counterfeit Christ, Finding the Real Jesus Among the Impostors, I recommend it to you heartily. Um, this is one of those problems time and time again. Jesus, uh, St. Paul made it clear that even in his day, people were accepting bogus images of Jesus. They were misidentifying him. And this goes on all the time. In fact, one of the best ways to uh, begin an evangelistic conversation is simply to get around to the question of who do you think Jesus is? Uh, and people generally have an opinion. And that gives you an opportunity, of course, to you know affirm what you can in that opinion and also make an appeal to Scripture or the teaching of the Church to help clarify other uh, aspects of it. But something's happened in biblical scholarship over the last uh, two generations, which I want to bring up. You might remember in the uh, Gospel of Mark, when Jesus is before the Sanhedrin, and the high priest asks him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed One? And Jesus answers, I am. Many people, by the way, uh, believe that Father, Father Thomas Winandy, when he was here, uh, thought like this. That phrase, I am, ego I me in the Greek, is often used to identify the divine name, I am, from Exodus chapter 3, verse 14. I am that I am. So Jesus says, I am, and you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the majesty, of the mighty one, and coming on the clouds of glory, or the clouds of heaven. That passage is reminiscent of Daniel chapter 7. And this is what's so fascinating about this passage. Uh, in the Gospel of Mark. Well, the high priest clearly thought Jesus was making uh, a claim to divinity. I am, and you'll see the Son of Man coming. Now, a lot of people get hung up with that, thinking that somehow the Son of Man is a denial of Christ's divinity. But I'll get around to it. Let me just stay with the, the high priest's reaction. The high priest, uh, when Jesus identified himself as the one coming with the clouds of heaven, the high priest ripped his garments. Uh, this was a clear sign that he was in the presence of a blasphemer. Why would Jesus be considered a blasphemer? Well, because he identified himself with the divine one. In Daniel chapter 7, there's something fascinating that has happened. You have all this imagery of the clouds and this suggests an appearance of Yahweh, just as you had the pillar of fire in the wilderness and the fire atop Sinai. Uh, those were all seen as the presence of the divine one. Well, in uh, Daniel, Daniel's vision in chapter 7, you get a stunning portrayal of, you might call it, the divine council in ancient Israel. So what you have is you have uh, Yahweh, the Ancient of Days, seated on a fiery throne, and then there's a cloud-riding figure that appears before him. Now, in the Old Testament, 
Yahweh is the Ancient of Days, and of course he's seated on the fiery throne there. But this other figure, the cloud-riding figure, uh, is also in the Old Testament identified as Yahweh. He's also identified as the Son of Man. So even in the Old Testament, Daniel chapter 7, you have Jewish monotheism, which also has within it some concept of plurality, the Ancient of Days and the Son of Man, the cloud-riding figure. It's really one of the great insights into um, Old Testament scripture, and it picks up on what Jesus said to the Sanhedrin.